0: Good morning everyone. Are we on? Check. One, two. Hey, good morning everyone. I'm not plugged in? My ears aren't plugged in? Good morning everyone. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Why don't we all stand as we enter into worship?
1: to greet those around you and the students can be dismissed at this time.
2: Good morning, and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Um, I'm Drake Oswald, the facilities director here, and we're so glad you're here with us this morning. If um, today's your first time or second time or third time, we'd love to get your contact information right inside the bulletin. You can fill it out, and um, we'd love to just reach out and say welcome, and we'd also love to meet you on the patio after church. And if you have a prayer request, something um, weighing heavy on your heart or um, something you'd you'd just like to say thank you for, um, something to, to share with Uh, people who can pray for you all week long. Um, You can fill that out right here. And then the bulletin rips in half, and you can put this in the offering um, when the ushers come by. Um, And we have a ton of great events planned this fall. Uh, You can find out about all of them on our website, ljcc.org. But I'd like to tell you about two of them. Um, We have fall uh, cleanup coming up and um, that's next Saturday, and it'll be a great time to come with friends and family and clean up your church, um, and there will be bagels and coffee and fresh fruit to get you started, and then uh, staining, painting, um, window washing, landscaping kind of projects, and um, we'll provide the tools, though if you have them, you can certainly bring them, and um, it's from 8 to 12, but if you'd like to come late or leave early, we appreciate whatever time you want to come do some chores with us. Um, so, yeah, come by. Uh, I personally connect with people better when I have a task to do next to them. And if that sounds like you, come join us. And if that doesn't sound like you, come join us um, and we'll have a good time. And then the second event is um, on November 9th and it's Stories for Women. And this is a great time for ladies 18 and up to come connect with one another, hear engaging uh, stories, um, hear what God is doing in some, some speakers' lives who will speak to the group, and then uh, I think there's a discussion time, too. And that's on November 9th, and you can um, you can sign up starting next week. Um, and as the ushers come forward, will you join me in a time of prayer? Lord, we just um, thank you. We thank you for all the ways you bless us, um, spiritually, physically. We thank you that we can see your hand at work. We thank you that if we were to start writing a list of all the ways you've blessed us, we would never finish that list um and out of that thankfulness and and um and gratitude during the during the offering we give back to you lord in your name we pray amen
3: phrase, that phrase, wonderful cross. Those two words don't go together. Wonderful cross. We're singing about a wonderful cross and uh, uh, it stirs up in me all kinds of conflicting feelings, right? Uh, I imagine had we been standing there that day, we wouldn't have said it was a wonderful cross. We would have said this is the most horrific event we've ever witnessed and yet it is, in that way that's counterintuitive. It's, it is a wonderful cross. It's the reason we've gathered here today, uh, because it's that cross that makes it possible for us to have access to God. Um, today we're going to celebrate Holy Communion, uh, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, <clears throat> three interesting ways of responding and, 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 and referring to the same thing, uh, because this wonderful cross causes us to say thank you to God. Eucharist means thanks. Thanks. Uh, today modern Greece you'd say thank you to somebody, you say it's an effinite now. You say Epharisto, Epcharisto, thank you. So when we say God to thank you to God, we say the Eucharist, we celebrate this this remembrance of of his sacrifice on that wonderful cross or that horrible cross, that hideous cross that created something wonderful that draws us together in his name. And we call it holy communion because he draws us into a relationship so intimate, it's scary close. It's a relationship that causes us to say, he knows everything about me, and yet he's drawing me closer and seems to really be glad that I'm in his presence. Uh, Holy communion. Uh, we call it the Lord's Supper, uh, probably because it, it happened at a, after a long dinner. If you've ever been at a long, really great dinner, I don't mean a long convention-like dinner, where you're hearing people drone on and on and on, but when you're at a table with people, you're captivated in that magic of the evening, of the moment, when you're having this dinner that could go on forever, and it seems to have just gone by in minutes, and you realize, oh my gosh, you've been here several hours, and you're just having a great time opening your hearts and your minds to each other, uh, talking about events, talking about people, talking about things that matter. And so we call this uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, because at the end of it, he said and did some things that brought it all together in a way that was profound. Uh, that sets up for that wonderful cross, and therefore we say we 're drawn into his holy communion, and we say thank you if how do still and really, what it caused us to do was to recognize uh, one big very, very big idea that we all need forgiveness, we all need forgiveness uh, that 's the first big idea of the morning, and i 've added a <clears throat> theological word at the end of it: we all need forgiveness and atonement. we all need something that only Jesus could achieve, that only God in Christ could accomplish. That's what the atonement is about. Now, in, England, in English, you could break it up and say it's about at one man. It's about being part of this intimate relationship that draws us into Holy Communion, makes us welcome guests at the family feast that Jesus hosts, and, of course, it causes us to say thank you, but we all need forgiveness and atonement. So let me ask you this question. Does that offend you, or does that comfort you? This idea that you need forgiveness, does that offend you? Or does that encourage you, right? Because if, there's people, you know, if you walked up and you said, you know, you really need forgiveness, they'd be offended, right? They would resent that. Who are you to say, I need forgiveness? <laughs> or, or would they say, yeah, right, I'm going to receive that, thank you. Uh, that's the big idea of the morning. Um, uh, did you see the most amazing and, and, and now famous 18-year-old in America this week? Brandt Jean, 18 years old. Uh, it, it was at the culmination of a trial for his brother's murder. Uh, on trial was a young woman named Amber Guygan, a police officer from Dallas, Texas, who distracted texting, came home one night thinking she was walking into her apartment. She was on the wrong floor in the, the apartment building, so she walks into an apartment like hers and sees a young black man sitting there eating ice cream. So she did the natural thing. She shot him. What was that all about? But somehow in her distracted state, her first response confronting this man in her what she thought was her apartment eating ice cream, she shot him. Uh, It's stunning. And of course, all that followed was this horrible, horrific event for the family and for her and for the city of Dallas. And it culminated in a trial where she was convicted of of murder and the second day following she was sentenced and at that day where she was sentenced <clears throat> uh, Brant Jean requested uh, to make some comments and he also requested that he uh, if it was okay he would give her a hug he would, he would hug the woman who had shot his brother Boston. so he said this he said I think giving he said this to her I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want for you. He said, I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. An 18-year-old. Later in the trial, the judge herself came down and gave Amber a hug. Which immediately, uh, you know, in in the Twitterscape, erupted in all kinds of pushback ab- about that event, both events: the, the young Brant giving Amber a hug, and the judge likewise giving her a hug. At, at the church in Dallas where the family has been worshiping, when they when they heard what Brant had done, they erupted into applause and praises for God. Their natural response was to thank God. For this incredible demonstration of grace on the part of Brandt, uh, likewise, people across the country, white and black, had the same reaction. However, there was there was pushback also. Oh, and another outrageous event where um, a black person feels compelled to forgive uh, this white murderer, and and then the, the references to Charlotte came out. You know, this. Um, but despicable act on the part of Dylan Root where he walks into a Bible study at a church in Charlotte and, and murders people. And of course those people uh, same thing, they, they responded with deep tragedy and trauma and grief and loss. Uh, the horror, the, the hideous crime perpetrated against them was not lost on them. But, but something emerged in the midst of that uh, that was forgiveness It looked like Jesus, sounded like Jesus. So you see across the, the nation, there's, a, there's this divide about, I resent that. Somehow this seems to lack justice and appropriate, you know, something appropriate in terms of what has happened here. And yet these people who are closest to it are saying, no, you don't understand the nature of God's grace. We're not condoning a crime. We're not making light of a despicable act of human depravity. Or, or inattention, and then an immediate response. It was completely out of order. We're recognizing something so profound that the only word we have for it is, it's wonderful. Not the event, but the capacity to forgive. And our world wrestles with this. Uh, do we resent it, or do we receive it? This Tuesday, uh, Sunset through Wednesday sunset is Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur is the holiest day uh, in Israel's year. Last week was Rosh Hashanah, uh, the new year, uh, Rosh, head head of the new year. Uh, And and Yom Kippur is this very holy period, fasting, repentance, when one looks back on the last year uh, and confesses one's sins and receives uh, forgiveness from God. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Communal repentance for the sins of the past year, the Jewish uh, holiest day of the year. And we wrestle with this, don't we? Uh, well, is it really sin that we're talking about or just good intentions gone awry? Uh, good people just not perfect. Uh, this is, this is our, our culture doesn't know what to deal with, how to deal with this. Sin uh, is an invasive problem in our human experience. We all acknowledge it, whether or not we call it sin or not. Well, I don't know if I'd call it sin. It might be inappropriate social behavior. Oh, okay, right. <clears throat> uh, but the, the effects of sin are devastating. They're they're cute at one level. When a two-year-old has their hand into something that they're not supposed to be doing, and you say, uh, "That's mine." And what do they do? They pull it close, and they start stepping back. And it's cute for about 30 nanoseconds until you realize this little kid is is expressing their flawed, fallen human nature. They're saying, I know it's yours. I know it's not mine. But now it's mine and not yours. (laughs) And I'm going to look as cute as I can for as long as I can. uh, and what do you do? Uh, uh, the, the wise parent or grandparent says, "Yes, you are very, very cute, and you're very, very wrong." <laughs> no, you, they would do something to the effect of just say, "That's mine. I'm taking that," and the kid would have a cry. And then, as, and as they got older, they would talk that through. This is what is okay. This is what is not okay. Sin. Something in us isn't right, and we don't like it, but we can't shake it. That's the big issue. People usually don't wake up every day saying, "I just can't wait to get out there and sin." If you thought yesterday was a big, big day of sin for me, you should wait today. Yo, it's no longer Yom Kippur; it's Yom. Let's just go for broke. In a world we see people wanting and even demanding virtue, isn't that interesting? We we wrestle with this whole idea, is it okay to call it sin? Is that an offense to somebody to call them a sinner to reference uh, behavior as sinful? But here's the thing. We're hungry. In fact, we even demand virtue. A 16-year-old high school kid shows up at the United Nations two weeks ago demanding virtue. In that wonderful, audacious, adolescent way, she's demanding all these people who have been convincing... In their, in their message to her and to her peers that the world is ending like on Tuesday. The world is coming to a very, very quick ending, and we're, we're robbing you of your future, and we're not going to do anything about it. So this young woman says, you're robbing me of my future. What are you doing? All you people who say you're, you're, you recognize climate change and you're doing something about it, all of you who flew here to New York from around the world on private jets or in commercial jets flying first class, and you got a really nice armored SUVs Driving you here, you're surrounded by a phalanx of people, you, you spew carbon uh, like it's going out of style, right? And, and you are sitting here, and I'm here to tell you, I'm demanding virtue from you. Uh, right? Did you see this? Did you read this? And, and all these guilty bureaucrats are saying, We were just kidding. No, they didn't say that. They said, what we were trying to do is leverage our concern in ways that advance our political agenda, but really, honey, there's nothing we can do about this. Didn't you understand that? No, she didn't understand that when you, when you talk about virtue, you, mean, you don't mean it. She actually believed that they meant something virtuous needs to happen immediately for future generations' benefit. This is the dilemma we wrestle with from the two-year-old uh, to the most powerful people representing the powers of the world gathering in one place to pretend like they're doing something virtuous while they deny it. Do you resonate with this at all? This is not a judgment on any particular person or body of people, it's just a, it's an observation on my nature and yours. This is an observation on human nature. In, a world, in, in our world, we see people wanting and even demanding virtue in others. I demand virtue in you and you and you and you and you and you and you, you. Uh, but I I resent it if you demand virtue from me because having now called it out, I'm in a virtue-free mode because once I can virtue signal and once I can virtue shame, I'm no longer complicit in the problem. I've already declared the fact that I am so above it and I leave it with you. I'll leave it with you. A song uh, from the lost 60s said it this way. Many of you lived through the 60s, though you might not remember it. I'll remind you of this song. Um, I'd like to change the world, but I'm not sure what to do. So I'll leave it up to you. It's a beautiful sleight of hand, isn't it? It's virtue signaling I see the need for change, but it's virtue-shaming. But it's just too hard because of all, all of you people make it really hard. I'd be way more virtuous if I was surrounded by virtuous people. So we all prefer to confess other people's sins, not our own. Now let me personalize it. I would much prefer confessing your sins than mine because yours are so obvious to me. My sins, however, are a special category. I put them under the category of the heading of good intentions, my sins are covered by good intentions, my virtue signaling, and I need to absolutely, because I'm an honest, righteous, virtuous person, recognize yours as the virtue-shaming opportunity that they are. This is how it works in the real world, is it, it? doesn't it not? Uh, and, and so I, I, I think I could wrap up the sermon right here, but I won't, <clears throat> because I would be lacking virtue if I didn't continue pummeling you <laughs> with this message. And and so we see the virtue signaling is at an all-time high, achieved by virtue shaming. So why doesn't anybody want to run for public office anymore? Are you kidding me? Not only will all the things I actually did come to light, but things I never did or dreamed of doing will come to light. And people who I've never met will come up and and bear witness to the fact that I did that, or, or or they think I did that, or maybe somebody they know thought I did that. And this is the craziness. We are obsessed, we're hungry for virtue. Why? We've said this previous weeks, we're made in the image of God. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, but we demand it from other people. We all prefer to confess other people's sins, not our own. But here's what the Bible says. Romans 3.23, the Apostle Paul, former rabbi Saul, now a follower of Jesus, sent out with this message. He says, we all have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. 100% of us. A perfect statistic, 100% of the people who've ever entered the human race, have lived in the human race, and exit the human race, uh, fit under this category. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And virtue signaling and virtue shaming is not new. It's, 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 It's a new title, a new way of talking about it. Virtue signaling and virtue shaming are phrases that have come into vogue in the last year. You never grew up hearing people talk about virtue signaling or virtue shaming. But it's, it's as old as human nature, right? Uh, John, the apostle, another apostle of Jesus, uh, wrote in what we call John's gospel, basically a, a salvation history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are these histories of Jesus' uh, entrance into the world and, and his mission. And, and, and in those four gospels, they tell overlapping versions of the same story. And so John tells us in, in, in what we call John chapter 8, about an occasion when a woman was set up for adultery and then brought before Jesus, accused of this adultery that she engaged in, having been manipulated into it by the men that are now accusing her. And it's a standard classic case of virtue signaling. Look, Jesus, this woman has been caught in adultery. Who knew? And you know, we all know what the law says, that she should be stoned. And uh, what do you think? And so they're virtue-shaming her, and they're trying to now virtue-shame Jesus because they want him to say something like, oh, uh, just let her go. Because he's been talking about the salvation that sets us free, the forgiveness of God. And so they're going to nail him. And so these are professional virtue-signalers and virtue-shamers, and they were called Pharisees. Uh, We don't have Pharisees nowadays. We have media. And we are the media. I don't mean professional journalists. I mean all of us are part of the media. All of us can text. All of us can Twitter. All of us can Instagram. All of us can email. All of us can talk to our friends and get all, you know, uh, wired up about, about virtue signaling and virtue shaming. And, we, of course, we all know what Jesus said if you've read the story. He says to them, he who is without sin throw the first stone. Yeah, of course. Yeah, guilty. She's an adulterous woman. The law says that she can be stoned. Whoever is without sin. Why don't you guys start? Get the ball rolling, so to speak. Show us how it's done. I don't know, just pause for a moment again. Just like standing at the cross would not have elicited from me, this is wonderful. Uh, I love the idea of accountability for sin. And when you talk about stoning someone, can you imagine right now if we were all to walk out there and watch somebody being stoned? We'd all be throwing up. If you thought you threw up when you did CrossFit the first time, in a way more emotionally uh, devastating way, to, to hear the thud of a rock on somebody, to throw the rock, to, uh, I mean, you know, this would be a, a, a disgusting experience. And these guys are saying, hey, they're not saying it, but the, the, the reality is, hey, we've set this woman up for this sin. We're complicit in it, but we caught her doing it. And now we want you to judge her so that we can take her out and stone her. What do you think? Go ahead. Whoever's never sinned, throw the first stone. And, of course, it's not about not looking at sin seriously. This is not Jesus demeaning the impact, the power of sin at all. It's him speaking to their hearts and challenging their, their, their virtue signaling and their virtue shaming. And it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they left. Isn't that interesting? Why that? Because the longer we live, the more we understand our own sinful nature. You might not have caught me doing anything, but had you only been privy to my thoughts, you would have known I was thinking of doing something. So uh, on, on any freeway in America, especially in L.A. and Southern California, when it gets really intense, if, you, if our thoughts were, 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 were revealed as what they really are, cars would be pulling off the freeway with dead people. If, if looks could kill, we'd be surrounded by dead bodies. This is the deep, deep nature of human sin. It's not just in our behaviors, the way, the way we think, the way we perceive things. That's why you can walk into what you think is your apartment and see a guy eating ice cream and kill him. This is the capacity of human nature to do depraved things, even when later we say, oh, I had no a- t- intention of doing that. Last week we talked about having a heart for God and because having a heart for God sets us up to have a heart for good. When we have a heart for God, he leads us into works of righteousness is what we were talking about last week. The Righteousness doesn't earn us the love of God or salvation from God. It expresses our experience of that salvation, of that power of God in us. And the apostle Paul said of David, the great king, Paul in the first century, we talking about David who lived a thousand years previously. He said, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And, of course, all of us, (laughs) the cynics that we are, uh, say, unless he doesn't, right? Until he doesn't. We know the story. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart, but David did what was right in his own heart, apart from any heart that he had for God. He's a man after God's own heart, except for when he wasn't. How did this happen? Well, it's because he, like us, loved exclusions and exemptions. We love exclusions and exemptions. We hate them when we have to sign the, the liability release. When you go to any amusement park or do anything that's fun, you have to sign away all your rights. And if you read it, which is a bad idea, because then you, you realize what you're saying is that, hey, if, if this boat I'm renting is, is going to blow up and it's your fault, it's my fault. You, you get an out and I, I get the bill or I get you know, the result. Uh, And so in contracts, as you know, an exclusion clause is where the party to the contract seeks to exclude all liability for certain breaches of the contract. It's about exceptions and loopholes, which I love if I'm on the right side of them. I'm all about exceptions and loopholes. I refer refer back to my good intentions. I like to avoid my behavior, but go back to my good intentions. We've codified this in law. But here's here's the fact. God's laws... And God's law allows for no exclusions or exemptions. He's a God of justice. Everybody complains about, well, why do we live in a world where bad things happen? What kind of God is that? Ah. First of all, your assumption is, my assumption is, it's God's fault. And we say that he must not be a God of righteousness and justice. He is a God of justice. This is the shocking thing when we realize there are no exemptions and no exclusions to his law. But I didn't know about it. It doesn't matter if you didn't know about it. He is righteous, and there is no sin in him. He's also a God of mercy and grace. And so, again, Paul writes to the Romans, this time in chapter 6, 23. We hit 323, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Romans six twenty-three, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So which is it? Is he compassionate and merciful, filled with love and grace, or is he just and righteous? And the answer is yes. That's God. That's who he is. And our our attempt to be like God is a very bad representation and imitation. We don't do a very good job with it. So John, uh, again, another one of Jesus' disciples that we've referred to in that story about the woman caught in adultery, uh, says it this way in his letter, first letter, first John one five to ten. He says this: This is the message we've heard from God and declare to you: God is light. How do we claim to be without sin? I didn't mean to do it. It's not my fault. It was, the sex was consensual. Right. Uh-huh. I thought it was my apartment. I had to do it. It couldn't be helped. All the ways that we rationalize the fact that either we were without sin or it should be held against us. And what, what John says is that we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, on the other hand, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and even purify us from all unrighteousness. Does this not sound like Brant Jean? I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want for you. I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you because you're already dead in your sin. And the effect of that has just destroyed the peace and unity of my family. And this happens every day somewhere around the world. And families are in tears and lives are shattered. And in that kind of a world, I only know one way that I can say I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And this young woman is going to have 10 years to think about that. Maybe five. But the, but the brilliant move on the part of this family is not to make light of this horrible tragedy. So let's get past it. Or I'm obligated to say this. But rather, I am so convinced there's there's no other hope for our family or this world but this that I will trust that in this moment and every moment from this moment, the Holy Spirit will be convicting this young woman of her sin and convincing her of God's love and grace for her, and that there would be a way better story written in this woman's life going forward. That's the radical, disruptive, revolutionary, outrageous, audacious, and scandalous nature of the wonderful cross of Christ. That's why we spend so much time talking about sin, we're not obsessed with sin. We're obsessed with the God who says, this sin is not the last word. But if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. is how John finishes that, that passage. So going back to David, following David's adultery murder cover-up, Nathan confronted him. And, and David has thought he's committed the perfect crime. You know, he's, he's had this affair with Bathsheba. She announces that she's pregnant. He figures out if I send her husband Uriah to the front lines, he'll be taken out in the natural course of battle. I'll pull her into my uh, household, and everything will go on just fine. And so Nathan comes to him, the great prophet of Israel, and he says, hey, let me tell you about this horrible situation that's happened. A family has a little lamb. It's like a member of their family. It's the only lamb they have. And if you were here last week, we we touched on this last week. And they, they treated it like one of their own. And their neighbor, very wealthy, massive herds, cattle, sheep, et cetera, a stranger practically. A person comes to their home, and they're required now to practice hospitality in the Mideastern way. And they go, oh, okay, this is inconvenient. What do we do? Ah, oh, let's go next door and get the lamb. They take the lamb. You imagine the screaming of the children, the heartbreaking pleas for mercy. And they rip it out of the family's hands, and they take it, and they prepare it as a meal for the guests who they don't know and won't even spend time with once they leave. David goes ballistic. Every kingly instinct comes out of him. Every shepherd boy protecting his sheep from a predator comes out of him. And he says, that's outrageous. He should die right up front. He should die. And follows that up by saying, and, and he should pay four times as much as he took. He's on a roll now. And you can imagine how it goes on, 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 how he's created this scenario of justice and righteousness. Why? Because he is a person with a heart for God in spite of his behavior. And Nathan, I'm sure, just lets this all come out and in a, in a very pregnant moment of silence when David, I'm sure, is leaning in to be affirmed for his virtue signaling and his virtue shaming. Nathan says, ah, yes, you are that man. You're the man I'm talking about. And this wasn't the one he was expecting. He, he expected Nathan to say, you're, you're the man. Way to go. That's exactly what we should do. It's like, no, you, you are the point of that story. It's you I'm talking about. Now, David, because he is a man after God's own heart, a flawed, failed, fallible man after God's own heart, a man who thought he could take a break from being a man after God's own heart, says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this is not to overlook Bathsheba or Uriah or the child uh, that was conceived and, and will die. He's simply saying, I've I've sinned against everybody every step of the way, but ultimately, I've sinned against God. I can justify sinning against any human being. She looked really good, and she didn't have to come over. He was kind of a jerk to her, so he deserved to die in battle. I mean, right? We could paint all these scenarios we go, ah, it's going to be okay. No. He says, I have sinned against God alone, because he's righteous, and there's no shadow of darkness in him. And it's before him that I stand, and I must give an account... That's before whom every single one of us will stand and give an account. David knew what he needed to do, and he did it. What did he do? He confessed his sin and repented. That means he turned back toward God. And this revealed his heart for God. And so he writes Psalm 51, which resonates with every single one of us. This would be one of those things, if you haven't memorized anything in the Bible yet, memorize this psalm, at least a section of it. Let me give you a section of it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Do those words lift you? I hope they give you goosebumps. I hope they lift you. I hope they they feel at first heavy uh, what he went through, what I've gone through what he was capable of doing, what I'm capable of doing. But I hope they lift you into into a place of saying, what kind of God is this? And what's the only word that comes to mind? Ultimately, he's he's wonderful. Imagine now Nathan saying to David, now you are that man. You are that man. That's the man God is redeeming you to be. That's the man God created you to be. You are that man. From confrontation to confirmation, this is the power of the wonderful cross. This is why we get a bigger vision of God when we, we start to pay attention to who he is and what he's doing, which leads us to the second point. If the first point was this, we all need forgiveness and atonement, two short points, no less profound, follow right from that. The second one being this, God's love and grace is revealed for everyone in the cross of Christ. This transcends cultures, ages and stages, socioeconomic statuses, Language groups, ethnicities, races, geographical, locations, political persuasions. God's loving grace is revealed for everyone in the cross of Christ. Again, Paul writing to the Corinthians who could reasonably be called the Californians in terms of their lifestyle and, and what they were in their day. Paul writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It's a symbol of the new creation of God's redemption. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Brant Jean got that message loud and clear. Brant Jean was an eloquent, ardent spokesperson for that message this week. The people in Charlotte continue to be ardent advocates of this message We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not might as in hope it happens, it might happen, may or may not happen. It might, it's a literary device saying, so that this will indeed happen. This is what happens when you're linked heart to heart, mind to mind, arm in arm with him. This is where you go. This is where it takes you. This is what you become, and this is what you will do. So what do we see here in this shocking, scandalous thing? God himself was willing to suffer and sacrifice himself for us. This is shocking and scandalous. As Jürgen Moltmann, a great, great German theologian, said, this is about the crucified God. The God who's not, not willing to watch a world of injustice destroy his creation. Not willing to see one more child of you, one more person taken advantage of, one more young person trying to make it in the world and being co-opted by people who are waiting in... in, 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 in uh, Various situations to corrupt them, to compromise them, to take advantage of them. And what does it tell us? God is unalterably against evil. And he took action to defeat and to destroy it. To defeat and to destroy evil. How did he do this? In that wonderful cross of Christ. And God is unalterably for us, taking action to save us and restore us to himself. How did he do it? Again, through that wonderful cross. Of Christ. And so the third point is this by faith in Jesus, we receive salvation, we receive redemption, we receive reconciliation. Salvation, the forgiveness of our sin. We become new creations in Christ. Redemption, we become part of God's kingdom. We become part of this movement of God's Spirit in the world. We're part of something much bigger than ourselves and our own salvation. And then finally, what is this reconciliation about? It's about that we're now part of this new creation in a way that the the possibility opens up for new relationships in us, around us, and through us. We become full participants with God and his work in the world. And so Paul can write this, I've been crucified with Christ, and really, I no longer live. Yes, it's me, but it's not me. It's, It's the right version of me. I no longer live as I used to live. It's a new version of me in the same old body, but it's a new me because of him. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is everybody's confession of faith in Christ. Young, old, male, female. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, therefore... I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So Brant Jean understands who God is and why we all need the Savior. In a world so confused about sin and so unwilling to own it and name it and receive the only known antidote for it, God raises up prophets among his people of whom Brant Jean is now one of them. He raises up righteous spokespeople not pounding a, a lectern at the, at the UN saying, you lied to me, make it right. That's a beautiful, beautiful, courageous gesture. It's just too small. Winnie Brant Jean to say, I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing. hmm He's right. And so he's really quoting Paul right into the Ephesians. Who said, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so the justice and love of God reveals God's grace for everyone. And so what do we do? Turn to him. For the first time or the umpteenth time, turn to him. Wherever you are right now in your life, turn to him, turn to him, open your heart to him, open your mind to him, agree with him about what he says in his word about you and about creation, about what you were made for, what you need to experience what you were made for. God forgives you and will take you into his embrace, just as Branchine took that young woman into his embrace, just as the judge came down from her seat and took that young woman in her embrace. People were outraged about that. How dare the judge do that? Yeah, that's what they say about God and Christ. How dare he do that? I know, I know. There's no explanation for it. Ah, except that wonderful cross. He loves you and gave his life for you. You are that man. You are that woman. We are those people. Named as those who were lost but for him, but loved profoundly forever by him. And nothing and no one can separate us from that love. In Christ. So what do we do? We learn from him, and we embrace his righteous, righteousness and his truth. We don't just kick back and wait to go to heaven. We're now conscripted, and we're now enlisted in a process of redevelopment, learning how to walk with him, learning how to not just name virtue, but to live into it. It's an active duty call that you've been given Follow his example. Obey his word. How? By your own natural strength? No, it didn't work the first time. It won't work this time. By his Holy Spirit at work in you. He will teach you through his Holy Spirit authentic virtue. It starts in confessing sin and it continues in confessing him as Lord and Savior. Virtue calls the best out in others rather than calling attention to yourself. You'll know that you're becoming a virtuous person When your virtue does not call attention to yourself, but it calls attention to him and attracts others to want to know more about him. Because if he can do it in you, certainly he can do it in them. So Lord Jesus, that's our prayer. That as we come to this table, as we receive this holy communion, this Lord's Supper, this Eucharist, that we would claim our true legacy made possible by you given to us as a gift by you, purchased for us by your own blood, given willingly because you love us that much. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So on the night that he was betrayed, on that incredible dinner night, and the resulting cross and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, on that moment, that flexion point in human history, when all things came together in Christ, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup and having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you do this in remembrance of me. I want to ask those who are serving communion to come forward right now and to take the bread and, and, and the cup and to go out throughout the room here and as you, as you are ready, come forward and, and you'll be offered this gluten-free matzah. Take a piece of it and, and you hear words like this. This is Christ's body given for you uh, and dip it into the cup. Just... And then return to your seat and simply reflect on this incredible gift that God has given you. That your sin no longer defines you. His salvation, his grace defines you. You are beloved son and daughter of the living God in Christ. And that's what we celebrate here today. That's why we say thank you, thank you, thank you to the Lord. So please receive communion whenever you're ready. way. Fantastic! What a confession of faith, right? That's who you are. You are that man. You're that woman. We are those people. These are the people that God is making by his grace, no longer defined by sin, but defined by him in them through his Holy Spirit, guided by his word in the company of his people. That's who we get to be because of him. If we can pray for you about anything that concerns you or anybody you know or anything that that you care about, go right around the corner, and people will be there who will say, how can I pray for you? They'll give a brief prayer, And if you don't know what you need prayer for, they'll just pray for you (laughs) briefly anyway. Uh, If there's anything we can do to help you grow in your faith, your walk with Christ, we want to do that. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him now and forevermore, one day at a time, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.